Previously on Flying the Line, under Lorenzo's leadership, Continental declares bankruptcy. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. Alpha supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Flight Finder, located in the Alpha app. Flight Finder is the most comprehensive resource for jump seat today, providing real-time access and availability for your commute to or from work. Download the app at alpha.org apps or in your smart device's app store. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 12, Pilots and Packs, Republicans and Labor, The Reagan Revolution Hits Alpha, Part 1. Teddy Roosevelt maintained an image as an eternally adolescent president. Forever hiking, camping, and exploring, his zest for life and concern for the less fortunate made him a hero to millions. But Roosevelt had another side. He was also noted for carrying a big stick, which he used regularly on enemies, foreign and domestic. In Latin America, Roosevelt laid into politicians who dared stand in the way of his canal in Panama. At home, he took dead aim at corporate executives, known then as robber barons. Working people loved Teddy Roosevelt for the enemies he made. One such enemy was George Bear, the pompous, overbearing, anti-labor spokesman for the nation's coal mine owners. Roosevelt found him immediately disagreeable. Roosevelt's angry sentiments about Bayer came in 1902, following a meeting in the White House. Roosevelt had called the meeting between the coal mine owners and representatives of the United Mine Workers to help settle the strike. This unprecedented attempt by a sitting president to mediate a labor dispute invites comparisons to the lack of action by George Bush during the Eastern Airlines strike of 1989. Nothing like Roosevelt's intervention had ever happened before. Presidents, whether Democrat or Republican, had been uniformly hostile to labor unions, siding with the courts. Democrat Grover Cleveland had even ordered federal troops to shoot down strikers during the Pullman strike of 1894 on the grounds that they were interfering with the mail. Roosevelt was something new in the history of the American presidency and its relationship to organized labor. Unlike most men in his wealthy social class, he had actually gotten to know the working people of America. First, as a rancher in the Dakotas in the 1880s. Later, during the Spanish-American War, where he shared the reality of combat with them. So, when privileged people like George Bear declared that the working men were lazy, irresponsible, and deserved their lowly status because of character flaws, Roosevelt knew better. He had seen men like the striking coal miners in action. He knew that they were the same breed who had charged up San Juan Hill with him in Cuba. So Roosevelt decided the miners deserved having their grievances heard. The coal mine owners, several of whom had been Roosevelt's Harvard classmates, had access to political power and influence. 
Roosevelt had already heard their horror stories about the United Mine Workers' penchant for violence. But he wanted to find out firsthand, rather than have his information filtered through those who were hostile to unions. To get at the truth, Roosevelt created what was, in effect, the first presidential emergency board. Now, flash forward from 1902 to 1989. The Eastern Airlines employees, stressed beyond endurance by Frank Lorenzo, were in the same position as the miners during the coal strike of 1902. They needed a forum to air their grievances. The sitting president in 1989, George Bush, was a man born into a family of wealth, power, and political influence, just like Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt had gone to the Dakotas to prove himself in the rough-and-tumble ranching business. George Bush also went west to Texas after graduating from Yale for the oil business. Roosevelt fought in the Spanish-American War. Bush was one of the youngest naval aviators in World War II. But that's where the similarity stopped. As an ex-Navy pilot, one might have expected George Bush to feel sympathy for men like those he had fought alongside during World War II, and at least given a fair hearing to the Eastern pilots. Roosevelt did as much for the coal miners who soldiered with him in Cuba. But for the moment, let's put this speculation aside and return to the meeting Roosevelt chaired in October 1902. He was in a state of high irritation because winter was looming. Coal, the nation's principal source of heating, was in short supply because of the strike. The mine workers' delegation, led by President John Mitchell, had already agreed to binding arbitration. As working men, they had no desire to see others suffer in unheated homes and factories. The purely economic aspects of their strike were negotiable, but the miners wanted the arbitrator to recognize their right to bargain collectively. In a leap of faith, Mitchell gambled that he could trust Roosevelt to appoint an arbitrator who would judge impartially. But the mine owners dug in their heels, rejecting arbitration of the UMW's right to bargain collectively. They expected Teddy Roosevelt to support them. The mine owners argued that Roosevelt should call out the U.S. Army to dig coal. How dare the president even listen to this rabble? let alone invite the coal miners into the White House. Bear argued forcefully that merely sitting down at the same table was a travesty. But when the President of the United States agreed to sponsor the meeting, Bear and his fellow mine owners were compelled to attend. Advance to 1989, and one might expect George Bush to not veto a congressional bill mandating a fact-finding commission in the Eastern Strike. Bush's background in military aviation, and the fact that several Eastern pilots had probably voted for him, would have been a painless way to handle the pilots' dispute. After all, Frank Lorenzo was unlikely to retaliate by becoming a major fundraiser for the Democrats. Not vetoing the bill would cost Bush nothing, and as a gesture, it might earn him political points with labor. Back to 1902, Neither Roosevelt nor Bush tried to hide their social status. 
Roosevelt's identification with the ruling class of America was obvious, and he never bothered with theatrical tricks to build a bogus sense of connection with working people. He relied on fair play and an open mind, not cheap shots, and that's what got George Bear and his fellow mine owners in trouble. Bear's scornful attitude towards working people was bad enough, but what really irritated Roosevelt was Bear's belief that he spoke with divine authority. Certainly, the assumptions that characterize Bear's attitudes towards labor unions harmonize nicely with the assumptions of the new breed of airline management in the 1970s. Actually, corporate leaders only concerned with the bottom line might have been worse than the robber barons of Roosevelt's day. At least Bear and his ilk expressed a sense that, by the virtue of their position, the wealthy were responsible for their workers' welfare. Contrast Bear with Lorenzo, who once declared that his flight attendants did not deserve a living wage, and George Bear doesn't sound all that bad. The underlying question that every 1990s airline pilot must have asked is why there was such a difference between a president like Roosevelt versus Bush. Two men, both war heroes, both aristocrats, both Republicans, but so very different. Bush, under circumstances that were roughly comparable to the coal miners, vetoed the congressional bill that would have created a presidential emergency board for Eastern's pilots. Roosevelt took the risk of leading the effort to settle the coal strike. Bush sat on his hands. Like his forebears in the coal industry, Lorenzo flatly rejected binding arbitration. Both Bear and Lorenzo believed they could win the fight with their employees, and they wanted no interference from politicians while doing so. But there was a big difference between the coal miners' strike of 1902 and the airline pilots' strike of 1989. The coal barons had to contend with a fair-minded president who would not bow to the anti-labor sentiments of his time. The striking eastern pilots would have no such luck with George Bush. How do we explain this set of historical circumstances, and what does it mean for professional airline pilots? The Republican Party was the vehicle of middle-class idealism. The grand old party entered the political arena as the authentic voice of reform, speaking for the noblest ideals. As the party that freed the slaves and saved the Union, Republicanism was absolutely dominant for two generations. Between the election of James Buchanan in 1856 and Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1932, only two Democrats won the White House, and both on flukes. Grover Cleveland got lucky in 1884 and again in 1892 when the GOP nominated weak candidates. Woodrow Wilson won in 1912 because of a split within the GOP between Teddy's progressives and the old guard conservatives. However, the long dominance of the GOP in national politics came at a price. Gradually, the GOP evolved into the National Conservative Party, committed to the status quo on social and economic matters. The conservatives identified with the idea that corporations should be seated first at the banquet of American life. This political transition didn't take place without a struggle. 
A fierce war for the soul of the Republican Party broke out in the first two decades of the 20th century. This battle pitted Roosevelt and his progressives against those Republicans known as the Old Guard. As the dominant party, the GOP had the power to mold the social, economic, and political landscape. So, it was natural that the conflict over these issues should manifest itself as a factional dispute within the party. The Democrats were a minority party, powerless to mold events. Post-Civil War Republicans dismissed the opposition by saying, while not all Democrats were traitors, all traitors were Democrats. But by the early 20th century, this old argument about who was loyal to the Union and who was a traitor was losing its power to obscure the real issues confronting American workers. The overriding issue between progressives and the old guard opponents was simple and stark. What should the limits of corporate power be? Should the men who controlled great corporations be free, unhindered by government, to seek profits at the expense of ordinary Americans? Or should government have the power to shape and control corporate power in the interests of the working people? Roosevelt spoke for that segment of the GOP that wanted to control corporate power, to guide its creative and beneficial aspects into socially useful channels. He denounced the greedy corporate leaders of his day as scoundrels of great wealth. Did employers have the right to lock their employees into unsafe workplaces to avoid spending money on fire safety equipment simply to maximize profits? Following the 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York, few Americans thought so. 146 workers, mostly women, perished horribly, trapped in the inferno because of their employer's greed. Roosevelt was outraged. The answer to such malfeasance was obvious. Laws must mandate a safe workplace. The old guard thought this kind of interference in the marketplace was terrible. If the women who died in the blazing factory didn't like their conditions of employment, they were free to quit. In a nutshell, the argument between liberals and conservatives in the 20th century boiled down to the question of whether government should force business to behave. Roosevelt was the first politician of stature to take the liberal position. He called it the New Nationalism. In 1912, Roosevelt split his party over this issue. His hand-picked successor, William Taft, whom he thought a progressive like himself, had betrayed the cause and gone over to the old guard during his presidency. After unsuccessfully seeking to regain the GOP nomination, Roosevelt entered the 1912 campaign at the head of his own party, the Progressives. In the three-way race which followed, Roosevelt came in second to the Democrat, Woodrow Wilson, but well ahead of Taft. Teddy Roosevelt would die in 1919, while this war for the GOP's soul still raged. His opponents, who controlled the party's machinery, eventually outlasted Roosevelt's progressives and became dominant. During the 1920s, the GOP's old guard consolidated power and elected three presidents, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover. 
they were some of the most conservative men ever to occupy the White House. The GOP increasingly became the party of big business. Coolidge expressed this perfectly when he said, The business of America is business. The man who builds a factory builds a temple. The man who works there worships there. George Baer couldn't have said it better. Next time on Flying the Line, ALPA responds by forming its political action committee. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 12, Part 1 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright alpha 2023, all rights reserved.